I'm Stephanie Cox, and this is Mobile Matters. Today, I'm joined by Rand Fishkin. Rand is the founder of Spark Toro and was previously the co-founder of Moz and Inbound.org. He's dedicated his professional life to helping people do better marketing through the Whiteboard Friday video series, his blog, and his book, Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. In this episode, Rand and I talk a lot about how he founded Moz and what he's doing now with SparkToro, the impact no-click search is having on businesses, and how only a small number of marketers actually realize it, and why you should consider one email address more valuable than a thousand Facebook fans. And make sure you stick around to the end, where I'll give my recap and top takeaways so that you can not only think about mobile differently, but implement it effectively. Welcome to the show, Rand. One of the things that I think is so impressive about your career is you've done so many different things and you really have kind of become this expert on all things SEO. How did that all happen? Sort of by accident. My So my, my mom and I co-founded the company that's now Moz. And initially it was a consulting business. Um, we were, you know, my, my mom had been running a, a small business marketing consultancy doing things like business cards and letterhead and logo design and yellow page ads uh, for small businesses around the Seattle area since 1981. So 81 to 2001. And then I dropped out of college and started doing web design for some of her clients as, as the web was getting big and people were getting connections. And that was fun for me and I think fun for both of us, but uh, it was not particularly profitable. <laughs> We ended up going deeply into debt, and we had uh, subcontracted SEO services, you know, from some local providers here in the here in the Seattle area, and we were not able to pay our bills. Like we couldn't we couldn't afford to pay our subcontractors for the work that we needed to do for our clients, and so you know the necessity was okay. Rand, you need to learn to do SEO so that we can deliver this work to the clients that we promised, and that meant you know spending a bunch of late nights learning how SEO worked and trying a bunch of things. And eventually I found that I had a, both a knack for it and a, uh, a lot of interest in it. And so I started up this blog initially called SEO Moz that was just designed to kind of record what I was learning and uh, share those things with people. And it became a popular website in the SEO communities. And then you know I launched some resources on there, uh, including something called the Beginner's Guide to SEO. And it took off. Uh, and that ended up becoming our primary business over the next couple of years. That's actually where I learned everything I needed to about SEO was from you. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think it was one of those things where I, yeah, I enjoyed it and I loved learning and sharing with other people and, you know, Google and, and the other search engines in the earlier days when, when there was sort of more distributed market share were always very tight lipped misleading uh, intentionally or not about how things worked in in their structures and systems and I wanted to demystify that so Moz has I think been a, a really helpful resource for a lot of people and that makes me thrilled right I, I love that search engine optimization is more accessible now than when I started in the field and now you're the founder of spark Toro so can you tell us a little bit about what your new company does so far, uh, nothing. <laughs> so my, my co-founder, Casey, and I are working to build some software that we think can help with a very frustrating marketing problem, which is discovering all these sources of influence that affect your or any given audience. 
So if you want to discover, you know, what podcasts do architects in Los Angeles listen to, or which events do general contractors in the Midwest tend to attend, or what publications do journalists in the field of economics uh, read and talk about, that's what we're trying to solve. And right now today, you know, that's a very manual, uh, intensive process of interviewing and surveying, which is really important and lots of marketers have to do it but but a lot of us don't you know we don't ask our audiences enough or we don't bother learning where we should go reach them and as a result i think a lot of marketing dollars get poorly spent and a lot of channels that could reach a tremendous number of people don't get investment and this is this is sort of the goal of spark toro uh is to be able to answer that with a single query right you type in architects perform a search filter to Los Angeles, click on the podcast tab. We tell you which podcasts architects tend to listen to. That would be amazing. As a marketer, I would absolutely love that. Me too. Fingers crossed we can we can get this thing built. <laughs> it's, uh, it's challenging, but I, I think it's possible. So if we switch back to SEO for a second, there has been so much changed in the last five years, especially. What have you seen the biggest factors have impacted the SEO landscape? Gosh, biggest factors. I mean, I think that certainly one of the biggest, if not the biggest, is Google's shift away from being a search engine that refers traffic to a search engine that tries to answer queries with their own results. So, you know, in fields like flights, hotels, weather, traffic, lyrics, film and television, medical queries, right? Google is essentially trying to present results that prevent you from clicking on anyone else's website and just let Google themselves answer it or solve that problem for you and and, and monetize that problem, right, for, for Google. And I think that's been that's been a very effective strategy for them and for their shareholders. And it's been immensely frustrating for, you know, everyone else on the web. But that is a reality. And so I think, you know, a lot of marketers and a lot of SEOs have had to compensate with uh, changes in their strategy in terms of diversifying their traffic, targeting keywords and phrases that are likely to still have decent organic click through, investing in paid advertising when Google presents that as kind of the only option above, above their own results, or potentially changing their business model to serve different audiences, different keywords, different subjects. To deal with that, do you think businesses understand the impact that this I, this concept of no click searching is having on their results? I think there's probably only a small percent who really uh, understand how severe the problem is and how much of a trend it is and how much of their sort of audience is being either taken from them or at risk. Right. So if you're a marketer and you work for a travel website, you get it. 100% you get it. You know that Google has siphoned away a ton of this. And you know that I think that a lot of the travel websites are immensely frustrated because Google often scrapes the content from your website, right? You've built all this content, you've done all the work and the research. Google's bots just crawl it, scrape it from you, and then repackage and represent it without attribution or with attribution that doesn't lead to a click. And that is... Uh, that's that's pretty frustrating, right? I think that if we went 20 years back in time, websites would just block Google, 
right? They'd say, "No way, I'm not. I'm not letting you access my data. You're a you're a content thief, um, and you you can't do this." But once Google had all the monopoly power, they could sort of Trojan horse their real business model, which is kind of AOL 2.0, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and I think that, you know, some marketers who are in some fields definitely get that. The vast majority of us probably not or not yet. I think this is true with Amazon as well, right? For a lot of e-commerce stuff, many folks thought, oh, you know, this is, this is really great. I'm going to, you know, Amazon's letting me advertise on their platform and put my products on Amazon. And then it's only later that you realize, oh, wait, Amazon's real model here is to figure out what has high sales, what has high customer engagement, what gets good margins. And if I do all those things, Amazon just makes another version, an Amazon version of my product and starts selling it and puts their results above my results. And I was just a training program for them. Yep. You were the startup cost that they didn't have to pay. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a tough thing about you know, really smart companies with you know, near monopolies and immense government lobbying power and you know, nearly untouchable business models, it kind of sucks to be the little guy or even the medium-sized guy. One of the things that we've seen a lot in terms of just search traffic is obviously going more towards mobile than desktop. Have you seen big impacts on search when people are using more of their mobile devices? Yeah. So certainly, I mean, two things are really interesting here. I think one is there was a lot of speculation that the rise of mobile would lead to the demise of desktop. And that is not what happened, uh, weirdly enough. Uh, maybe not that weird, right? Just as, just as television never killed radio or, or you know, audio, and you know, the video cassette didn't end up killing movies and television, uh, the same is true with mobile not killing desktop. The desktop has certainly flattened off. You know, it's plateaued. It's no longer growing. I think it's down maybe... Two to five percent in terms of usage from its maximum in 2011 or so, but desktop, weirdly enough, at least from a search engine optimization standpoint, probably still drives more traffic than mobile, and that is because the click-through rate on desktop is much higher. Right, when people are doing searches on desktop, they often click more than one result. They often actually click a result, whereas on mobile, they often don't click a result. The no-click searches. That we talked about, you know, are twice as high on mobile as they are on desktop. I think something over sixty percent on mobile, and somewhere around thirty-five percent on desktop. So not quite two x. And so you you get this weird world where optimizing for mobile is hugely important. You know, half your traffic or more probably comes from mobile. Maybe it's only thirty or forty percent, depending on your space. But desktop has not lessened its importance. And there are folks who have over-optimized for mobile and made their desktop laptop experiences worse as a result, you know, less rich, uh, less useful. And I think that's probably actually earning them. What would you recommend is the balance between the two then when you think about optimization? So I think about, I think about mobile and desktop as being very similar, but not quite exactly the same. And I think that it pays to invest in the things that make for a great mobile experience, which is essentially uh, speed and ease of UX without ignoring what makes for a great desktop experience, which is essentially rich results that don't limit or uh, filter the opportunity to navigate, to explore more deeply, to get big images or high quality video or whatever it is that you're 
uh, that you're seeking. So I think that I think you can play both of those very reasonably uh, in a modern, you know, in a modern web browser with a good website. And there's lots of good examples of, of folks doing a great job with that. You mentioned speed. So I know Google last summer released their speed update. Have you seen that have any impact on rankings for anyone? I know there was a lot of talk around it could, but has, has there been any data proving that out or not? Nope. <laughs> it, looks, it looks from the SEO world like it was aligned from Google. And, you know, occasionally someone, some Google representative will be like, well, you know, it is, it is a small ranking factor. It's not, it's not a big one. And, you know, you sort of look at the, the correlation numbers like, gosh, hmm, you know, where, where can we find places where speed seems to be the, the winner? And eh, not a lot. That being said, you shouldn't optimize for speed just because Google makes it a small ranking factor or not. You should be optimizing for speed because users care about it a ton, right? And I think, I think that's the, the much more important piece. And I, I worry when folks say, oh, let's optimize for this because Google says it's a ranking factor or let's not optimize for this because Google says it isn't. I, I think that's a poor way to make a decision versus, oh, this is something that will really help my users. This is something that will add you know, value to my website. This is something that will get me higher conversions and more email addresses and you know whatever it is I'm looking to do. I think that's such a great point because I think marketers do that a lot. Is they're like, oh, a change is coming. Let me go do whatever that change says, and they don't they don't take a step back and say, what is that going to do to my user experience? And yeah, it might get me higher in rankings. It might drive more clicks. But if they come to my site and they don't do the action that I want them to do, does that really matter? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the best examples of this is in the social world, right? Where so many marketers for many, many years optimized and over-indexed on how do I get more Facebook likes to my page? How do I get more Twitter followers? How do I get more, more LinkedIn followers? How do I get more Instagram followers? All that kind of stuff. And, and it was only later that we realized, oh, wait a minute, Facebook is going to show my posts to less than 1% of the people who clicked follow. I should have gotten one email address instead of 100 Facebook fans. Crap. I, I, I got misled. and. That's uh, that's a real danger. You know, today I'd probably take one email address over a thousand Facebook followers. Once again, proving that email is not dead. Oh no! I mean, email email open rates are still amazing compared to social, you know, click through and open and engagement rates. And there's so much you can do with an email address, right? You can take an email address over to Facebook and advertise against it. You know, using a custom audience, you can take it over to Google and use. RLSA, re remarketed list for search advertising. You can, you know, take it to LinkedIn or to Twitter. You can email those people directly. You can use it in display advertising. Just superpower. An email address and a website visit. Uh, those are the things that I would optimize for. You know, social fans and followers um, appearing in zero click searches from from Google. I don't think these things are as valuable. The value of being the content that's spoken aloud by an assistant like Alexa or Google Home, I don't think those have a lot of value. But they're the current shiny object that sometimes we all want to chase, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, very, it's pretty funny, right? I see all these uh, marketers talking about, oh, okay, you know, voice, voice answers are going to be really hot this year. AI is going to be hot this year. Virtual reality is going to be hot this year. And I, I kind of look and go, what? Uh, Internet of Things will be hot. What value are you as a marketer getting from investing in an Internet of Things marketing strategy or a voice answers marketing strategy or a VR marketing strategy or AI? 
And the answer is often, well, look, it's hot. Like we got to invest in it, which is that's not an answer. I completely agree. It only makes sense if that your customers would actually want to use that to engage with your brand. Otherwise, you're just chasing another shiny object. One of the weird things about marketing that I think is is tough for folks to grasp is that we do not we do not need to lead markets. In fact, it is probably a very poor decision for marketers to lead a market rather than to follow. So, if your customers and your audience of potential customers all start using a platform, a tactic, embracing a technology, enjoying a type of content or medium, great. Now go pursue that. But being ahead of the curve, right, and sort of, oh, we're going to adopt uh, virtual reality, video on demand, you know, webinars through Oculus Rift. How many, how many users could you possibly get for the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars you're going to spend on that? And you can wait until there's market saturation there and then go invest. That doesn't, that is not going to hurt you. And the cost would come down dramatically too at that point once there's market saturation. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly. Yeah, well said. So speaking of topics that are getting a lot of conversation, this idea of on SERP SEO. So for all my listeners that I don't know what that is, can you kind of explain a brief definition and then why it's so important? The concept behind on SERP SEO is that much of the interaction around many queries and for many brands is happening on the search engine result page itself, right? So if you do a search for Nike in Google, uh, the results that come up are engaged with two to three times more than the actual page on Nike.com that that people click through to. And so on SERP SEO is the practice of doing SEO type of things to control which results show up and what those results say about you and what the snippets of the results and the titles and the descriptions and Google's knowledge panel about you and you know the videos and images and news items that might come up in that page. You can do SEO to influence all, almost all of those things. And for many brands and many products and websites, influencing what appears there and what the SERP looks like to a a searcher is an important part of their marketing mix. If I'm a marketer and I am not doing anything with on-SERP SEO, how do I get started or what do I do to optimize content for that? Uh, Let's see. I think the first thing you do before you get started is to look through, or, or if you don't already have a list of keyword research, you know, do your keyword research, look at all the terms and phrases and say, which of these is, you know, A, important enough to my brand, B, uh, gets enough search volume to be worthwhile for me to go invest in, and C, uh, doesn't get a high click-through rate back to my website or back to a website, uh, such that doing SEO on the SERP itself probably is, is very important. And if you, if you get that list of those three things, you can then prioritize the words and phrases where you should be making investments in what appears on those pages. And then from there, you know, you, you go look at the SERPs themselves, right? The search engine results. And you say, okay, what's showing up here? What's not showing up here? What do I want to show up here that isn't? What do I not want to show up that is showing? And how can I you know, make changes to that? If it's there's unflattering results, okay, how do I get some high-ranking results up in there? Uh, if it's there's inaccurate data, how do I correct that data? What, you know, where is it coming from? Uh, who controls it? What, who, what do I have to influence to, to change that? If it's, um, you know, there's images or there's videos that I 
wish were these other images or videos. Maybe they're not negative, but they're not as positive or as good as the other ones. Okay, how do I do some image SEO? How do I get some YouTube videos, which is basically all that Google shows in video results nowadays, that will help manage or take over the results that are already there? Do you find that most marketers do keyword research, or is that something that we're still all behind on? I find that most savvy SEOs do keyword research, but I think that when we broaden that out to marketers, the answer is it, it's a small number and not not nearly as many as should. And then I think there's also, you know, there's levels of sophistication around keyword research. So looking at a list and prioritizing pure, you know, doing your, your keyword research exclusively in Google AdWords, or I think it's just called Google Ads nowadays, is probably a terrible idea because Google hides the volume numbers from you for a lot of searches and won't suggest a lot of searches that are relevant, but that they don't think you should buy ads for. So Google Ads is a fine platform, and they do a decent job of optimizing for what keywords should I buy advertising against. And if you are trying to figure that out, great, use Google Ads. But if you're trying to figure out what organic terms and phrases should I rank for, no, Google Ads is a terrible, <laughs> terrible platform uh, to use. You'd be better off with you know, Google Suggest or Google Trends if you're looking for something free. And, and probably if you want to be sophisticated, you should use a paid tool like Moz has a tool called Keyword Explorer, which, you know, full disclosure, I, I worked on. That was one of my last projects before I left. But I think it's quite a good piece of software. And there's two competitors to it that are also pretty good ones from a company called Ahrefs. Uh, their tool is also called Keyword Explorer. And there's also a tool called SEM Rush, which is quite popular as well. And those platforms, well, at least Moz and Ahrefs both have um, an estimate of organic click-through rate, which comes from clickstream data. So you could, you could say, you know, type in uh, whatever it is, Seattle to New York fares. And it would show you, oh, you know, the click, the estimated click-through rate for that is only 30% versus whatever it is, um, something like best Seattle, you know, summer, uh, best neighborhoods to stay in in Seattle in the summer. And that might have an organic click-through rate of 80%, right? And so that you, you would say, oh, okay, I can get more sophisticated with my keyword research. It's not just volume. I want to know volume, but I want to also know how difficult is it going to be to rank for a keyword? And what's the click-through rate that I can expect from this keyword? And now I can start prioritizing intelligently. I'm so glad you brought it up not to just use Google Ads for your keyword research because when I talk to people, a lot of times they'll tell me that's what they're doing. I'm like, but you're, but no, but no, please stop. <laughs> yeah. Google, Google's not optimizing for you, man. That's not, that's not what they... <laughs> right? The, the, their goal is not to get you the best data so that you can rank organically, right? They're, they're trying to get you to the right paid ads. One of the things that I know a lot of marketers, myself included, have done the last 10 years is really latch on to the concept of blogging and how, especially like the early 2000s, even late 2000s, early 2010s, that was a really big way for you to improve your SEO results. Is that still the case today? Or have we seen changes in how blogging really impacts that? I think the answer is it depends. Now, this is, this is not really true of many, many things in SEO, but um, a blog may be a good way to you know, optimize uh, content for your website and to you know, earn the rankings that you want, but it may, it may not be. It really depends on the sector that you're in, right? Are you in a sector where 
fresh, regularly produced content that has a short shelf life, but that is sort of engaging with the other blogs and website communities in your space can drive a lot of results? Or is it the case that a blog is sort of temporally working against you? By, by that, I mean, you know, you publish a post, it has a shelf life of six months. After six months, you know, people, generally speaking, in your field don't pay it much mind or attention anymore. And, you know, historical resources that are, you know, six months or a year or older aren't as trusted. Okay, maybe blog is the wrong way to go, right? Maybe we should be uh, publishing in other ways. And certainly there's there's loads of options, everything from basic articles to uh, news structures or white papers or research papers or more guide-driven content, those kinds of things. Yeah, I think it's it's also a question of, you know, how often are you updating, right? Are you publishing something every day or every week or a few times a month? Okay, maybe a blog makes sense, you know, especially if it's more of an informal type of publishing that you're doing. But if it's something, you know, more formal, more structured and less frequent, blog probably doesn't make sense. So it, it, it depends. When you look at search trends in the United States and you compare that to other parts of the world, so EMEA, APAC, et cetera, are there differences if I'm a global company? Is there things that I need to think about? There's a huge amount of differences. I mean, there's so there's um, cultural and user and user experience differences. Uh, obviously, there's language differences. And then when it comes to search and, you know, search specifically, there's, there are big differences in how Google does ranking in, you know, let's say India versus Bulgaria versus France versus the United States. I love that you just mentioned Bulgaria because no one ever talks about Bulgaria. My kids happen to be adopted from Bulgaria. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I actually, I visited uh, Sofia a few years ago and gave an SEO talk there. And I, I think I learned more from them than they learned from me that the, the, you know, the local SEO community was sort of like, hey, this is how it works here, you know, in, in Bulgarian, you know, the searches are structured differently and Google's rankings are much less sophisticated than, than what you've got in English language speaking countries. You know, a lot of spam tactics are still working. Uh, Google is much more link centric here than they are other places. Uh, they're not good at filtering out exact match domains here versus in the US and, and the UK and other places. So yeah, very, very different. I think it, you know, it pays to find some on the ground experts in those in those places, as opposed to relying on like, okay, well, you know, what's what are the best practices that Google is talking about or SEO people are talking about in the United States? Well, you know, some of that might apply a little bit in Bulgaria, but a lot of it doesn't. When you talk to marketers about search, what's the one thing you tell them they have to be doing right now that they're not? Gosh, I hate to give an it depends answer, but that that's almost always the case because the level of sophistication of marketers varies dramatically and what is the best thing to do in your field also varies a lot. I, I would say one of the things that I do a lot is talk to startups and early stage companies and you know small businesses that are launching their you know web efforts or trying to double down on them. A lot of the time a, a big question that comes up is where should I invest? You know, there's all these channels, all these opportunities. Should I start a blog? Should I be participating in social discussions? Should I try and build my YouTube presence or my Instagram? Should I be investing in content marketing? Should I be doing a more paid marketing? Should I try and get an email list going, right? That the list goes on and on. And 
the answer that I always give is, look, you, you only have time and attention and effort to put towards maybe two or three of those. You can't do 50, right? Unless you have a huge marketing department, you, you really can only do a few. And you can only do a few well. And so I urge people to find one or two, maybe three, that, that are at the intersection of three things. One, something that you are personally, a channel, an activity that you are personally passionate about and interested in. And the reason for that is I find that people are not good at investing in channels that they don't personally like and care about, right? If they sort of go, oh, Twitter, hate it. I don't really get it. Yep. <laughs> well, guess what? You know, if you hate it, it's probably not going to be a great marketing channel for you. Even if your audience is there, even if you think there's marketing opportunity there, sorry. Like, you know, if, if, if you're not into it, probably you should take that off the list and find something you, you're, you're more interested in. Second, uh, somewhere where your audience actually pays attention. So maybe you're hugely passionate about Instagram and you love you know, the, the format of the photography there and you're really good at crafting stories for Instagram and da-da-da. And like, personally, you use it all the time. You've got a lot of followers. But guess what? If your audience is B2B electricians, no. Like the, sorry. They're not on Instagram. Yep. Uh, even if they are, they're not on it for their work, right? And, yep, exactly. And I think this is a big problem, right? A lot of people say, oh, everyone's on Facebook and Instagram. So of course, that's where I should be doing my marketing. And that is dead wrong. You know, Facebook has bias to make it such that, you know, you really are not not going to get reach, not going to get engagement in things outside of like, here's, you know, my friend's baby pictures, you know, or latest political controversy type stuff. The third one that I urge people to pick is somewhere where they feel confident they can add unique value, meaning there's lots of other people who are already whatever, blogging, doing an email newsletter, making a YouTube channel, putting together an Instagram feed. What is it that you are going to do that you are confident is uniquely valuable to your audience and different from what everyone else is doing? And if you have a great answer to that question and a great answer to the other two, awesome. That's a good channel for you. Prioritize those. So how do you combat the issue when your boss, whether they're in marketing or you know the CEO of the company says, well, why aren't we doing it all? We need to be on everything. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I think... Generally speaking, that's a that's a simple answer, right? Which is, we can either invest deeply in a few channels and get a lot of value from those, or we can invest very shallowly in many channels. And of course, when you hold the purse strings and you know you're signing the paychecks, you get to control which one you want to do. So it is up to you. However, these are the benefits and drawbacks of each, right? We can either be relatively non-competitive because we're not investing deeply. But we are visible across a lot of channels, and maybe that's of interest to you, you know, uh, as a personal point of pride, or because you think that's the best way to do marketing. Or we can go deep on two or three, and here are the benefits of that. Right? We can we can be sort of uniquely competitive, and as we scale, we can add more channels and those kinds of things. So, you know, I I would leave the just obviously the decision is up to them. Uh, I think it's just up to the marketer to present the the pluses and minuses. I like that you said uniquely, like making it unique for you, because sometimes I feel like our initial gut reaction is, well, our competitors investing heavy in paid search. That must mean that they're driving results. Let's go do that. Oh, and you have to be really careful with paid search, especially, right? I mean, paid search, one of the things that's fascinating is those, uh, I've been writing about this recently, but a lot of paid channels are being 
invested in by companies that are venture-backed or backed by private equity dollars or growth equity dollars. And those dollars are not seeking profitable return on investment. They are seeking user growth, right? So their, their job is not, you know, spend a dollar or make a dollar and five cents back. It's spend a dollar and happy to lose a dollar or more. Or five. Right that, so that I can show that my growth numbers are rising because that will get me my next round of investment, right? I don't need to be profitable. I don't need to be showing return on investment. And so paid channels, especially Facebook and Google in competitive spaces are overrun with non-ROI seeking dollars. And that, that can make them look really, or that can make them very, very unattractive to a marketer who needs to make a return. There is absolutely no one better to talk about SEO with than Rand. He's led the industry on SEO education and created a ton of resources that an entire generation of marketers, myself included, have really learned most of what they know about SEO from him and the content his team created. And I know on a personal level, I really cannot wait to see what he does with SparkToro. If he can solve the influencer problem for marketers that he discussed earlier and really help us determine what channels, events, resources, et cetera, are most effective for our companies, he's going to once again, substantially influencing marketing. Now let's get to my favorite part of the show where we take the education and apply it to your business. There are so many great insights from my conversation with Rand that can really help transform how you think about mobile marketing. Let's dive into my top three takeaways. First, the marketing landscape has dramatically changed in the last 10 years. And while I know that sounds like an obvious statement, everyone, I wonder how many of us, if we sit back and are honest with ourselves, really understand the extent of what's changed and what that really means for our business. There were two topics I talked about with Rand that really kind of came up to me when I started thinking about this concept. The first was how much of our time do we currently still spend on acquiring new fans and followers on social media? Now, if I think back to earlier in my career, I did some of that and we all did because social media was this new and shiny object and there was a ton of potential with it. But how much of that has actually been worth it long-term? Rand's point about a single email address being more valuable today than 1,000 and let me repeat that 1000 Facebook followers just really struck a nerve with me because I've seen so many marketers still claim that email is dead and it's not valuable. And I've seen people move away from email acquisition as a major tactic in their marketing strategy. And I wonder how many of us are still focusing on social media growth and thinking about our Twitter followers or Instagram followers our Facebook fans and so forth and really overlooking email. So that was like a really big, just eye opening moment for me. The other point I think he made that was really phenomenal that I also see marketers struggling to really grasp is the impact of no-click search. And to some extent, if you think back to what's happened in SEO, it's kind of quietly happened with Google. They didn't make a big announcement that it was happening. It just started happening. And we really, a lot of us haven't noticed the impact that it's having on our business. And so we really need to take a step back and look at all the changes that have happened in the marketing landscape, especially as technology has evolved, and honestly evaluate whether or not we are truly keeping up with the changes. Or if because the changes have happened slowly over a period of time, we're actually super far behind and don't even realize it. Next, if you're like most marketers, you have to prioritize your time and resources, regardless of how big your team is. I find this to be a challenge really at marketing teams that are hundreds of people to ones that are teams of one or two. But how do you determine where you should focus your energies that drive the best results for your business? This is a challenge that we all have, and it really does change throughout your career and throughout every business that you go to. 
And I think Rand gave some really great suggestions on how to think about that very question answering it that I, I thought were really simple, but also exceptionally helpful, especially his comment around being focused on two to three channels or opportunities and not trying to tackle all of them. And I know we all want to do all of them. I fall into that bucket as well. But I think this idea of really looking at the intersection of what you are personally interested in, somewhere your audience is actually paying attention, and then also where you can feel confident that you can add unique value to your audience. They're not earth shattering statements, but when you start to think about the intersection of all three of them, it makes a ton of sense of how that actually could be what moves your business forward faster. So what I think we need to do is take a step back and look at our marketing priorities that way. What if we said we don't need to be everywhere? What if we said we are intentionally only going to focus on the channels that meet these three guidelines? It's going to enable us to better allocate our resources, which I believe are going to drive better results. And I believe Rand feels the same. So it's all about whether or not we're okay with doing a lot of things just okay, or if we really want to be exceptional at a few of them. And if we're honest with ourselves, few brands truly need to be everywhere to meet their target audience. Finally, can we all agree to stop looking at what our competitors are doing and then immediately trying to do the exact same thing? And I know that some of us hear this from other people in our organization, but it is our natural inclination, so I get it. But I want us to think about this differently. There's a ton of value to looking at other successful companies and trying to emulate a little bit of what they're doing because we want to drive the same type of results. However, why are we always assuming that what our competitors are doing or what another company that's successful is doing is always going to work for us or that that exact tactic is actually working for them? And I think the comment that Rand made around paid search was really, really insightful. So he said that companies that are investment funded are really focused on growth, right? They're not focused necessarily on profitability. So paid search could be an area where they invest a ton in because they don't need to make, you know, $3 for every dollar. They might be okay making $1 for every dollar or even less than that in order to hit their growth targets to get to that next round of funding. So this could actually mean that their paid search investment is driving them significant growth, but not actually making them any real money. And so unless you're wanting those same type of results, it's probably not going to work for your business to the extent that it might work for a competitor in that situation. And that's why we really need to do our research. So think about what you see other companies doing, dive into what they're doing. What about their business? Try and figure out if how they're using it and what type of results they're probably trying to drive with it to see if that makes sense for you before you just jump in and start doing it. Now, here's my mobile marketing challenge for the week. Take the time, and it's really you guys gonna take you maybe an hour to do, to answer those three questions about what channels and opportunities you find most personally interesting, where your audience is paying the most attention, and where you can add a unique value. What's the intersection of these three? Hopefully that list is only two to three things. If not, you're gonna need to whittle it down and ask yourself those questions again. And then take those answers and try and make it part of your Q2 strategy and focus. I know most of you are in the midst of Q2 planning and implementation, so there's still time to do this. And I'm not saying pivot your entire marketing strategy for the quarter to this list, but instead focus some extra time on it. See what happens. I think you're gonna be really happy with the results. I'm Stephanie Cox, and you've been listening to Mobile Matters. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Until then, be sure to visit Lumivate.com and subscribe to get more access to thought leaders, best practices, and all things mobile.